Hi and welcome to Cheeky Crypto Uncensored. We got a fantastic interview with Fred from the Cardano Foundation. Huge interview and uh, really excited and thankful that he's taken the time out of his busy schedule to spend it with us and yourselves. If you enjoy this sort of content, mash up the like button, subscribe if you haven't subscribed already, tap in that bell, selecting all the notifications so you never miss a video. And if you're watching on Twitter or X as it wishes to be known now, um, then hit that like button and give it a repost. Really do appreciate it. Right. Let's get down to the interview. So welcome, Fred. Uh, thanks for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to spend it with us and uh, answer some of the questions that, you know, the community had. Um, can we start by um, getting you to just uh, talk us a little bit about yourself, how you got into blockchain and, and what your role is at the Cardano Foundation? Sure. And thank you for having me here. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I'm a bit of a... I'm a bit of a dreamer, right? And uh, I want to change society because I think we can do better. And uh, I've been sort of a, a journey of democratizing uh, access to capital markets for, I don't know, close to 20 years now or something like that. And through that journey, it obviously uh, brought me to, uh, to first to Bitcoin, uh, later to Ethereum and, and, and blockchain in more general. And with Cardano being a third generation blockchain, it really opens up the opportunity for not just, you know, capital markets but systems in general and i think you know if you kind of look at the core of how we act react and interact as humans is we sort of create these social systems and sometimes they're sort of you know enhanced by uh scarce resources uh whether that being money or other assets or time and so on and other times they are not but we again and again see that you know, it, it allows us to scale and, and, and use labor force in different ways by, by doing that. And uh, yeah, I think we, most of us have sort of been standing a little bit and observing what happened under the COVID pandemic and, and other things and start seeing that some of this institutional trust um, is really under pressure. And the world is sort of, it's not coming together as a global human race to try and solve some of the problems we're dealing with on Spaceship Earth. It's, it's actually more slipping apart which uh, brings even a, a larger place for blockchain to play. So with, with me actually being um, sort of the, the smith of all trades at the Cardano Foundation, my job is really to explore the art of the possible, uh, but also ensure that you can actually um, you know, find some peace in operating on Cardano because you know, uh, some of this technology is, uh, is, is very advanced and it, it falls into the category of exponential technologies. So when we start thinking about operational resilience and disaster recovery and, you know, how do you even know that this exists in 20 years time as, as it is today? You know, it, it starts getting very interesting in terms of how much is your bet on this uh, public technology stack compared to what is your bet on a, on a centralized stack you trust and, and can control. So, um, so my job really in the Cardano Foundation is really um, three things are very shortly said is about Operation resilience is about education and education spans wider than sort of just educating the average person about what is a blockchain and what is Cardano, but it really goes also into some of those personas, which um, lately had a lot of voice, like regulators, policymakers, uh, people who's concerned about national security and so forth. Uh, and then last but not least, enabling in adoption. 
So, you know, putting the last, you know, bricks on the table, which allows, you know, true mass adoption to happen. So, yeah, um, as Chris alluded to, it's fantastic to have you on the channel today. Um, Fred, could you explain to us, obviously, what the, the Cardano Foundation is, you know, and what its role is for anyone that doesn't really know? Sure. So the Cardano Foundation is a very different animal than uh, many other blockchain foundations and associations around the world. So, uh, and actually, when you kind of look at Cardano, Cardano has done some very different architectural choices like EUTXO and other things, which uh, is unheard of uh, for many setups, but actually also in the legal structure, Cardano is very different. So first and foremost, in the simple sense, Cardano Foundation is a Swiss nonprofit uh, organization, which is tasked with advancing the public digital infrastructure of Cardano. Now, what is different is that the Cardano Foundation didn't create the blockchain or didn't do uh, sort of the initial um, um, funding rounds or anything like that. That's all done by other entities and, and, and way before the, the Cardano Foundation. The Cardano Foundation is, a, is more a conclusion of this. It was set in to ensure that somebody was looking at the long time access, you know, the 10, 20, 30 years time looking at, you know, having an entity in the ecosystem from the start who's not optimizing towards a commercial gain or towards profit, but is really optimizing towards uh, an optimum, if I may say so, uh, on the actual blockchain and its adoption. So a blockchain is sort of a quite advanced social system, actually. And uh, many people think it's, oh, it's only technology. But actually, the blockchain's value only has the same value as the people who choose to live and, and give their resources to it. And there, there's a lot of stakeholders which you need to be aware of. Um, and that's really the role of the Cardano Foundation is, is to go in there as a nonprofit entity and really optimize towards uh, the general sort of optimum on a long time axis and decision-making on a long time axis compared to many other uh, sort of entities who is optimizing towards maybe, you know, uh, you know, next year or even six months time or the next uh, launch of a product and so forth. So it's a very different rule. The other part is that the Cardano Foundation don't control the monetary policy, nor do we have any kind of secret keys or anything like that where we can just mint some more tokens or we, you know, we are sitting on a pile of, of, of cash where we can just sort of, you know, you know, decide, you know, five people in a room decide this project is better than the other. Um, there, Cardano again is quite different, right? So we have uh, this beautiful concept of, a, of Catalyst, where we already have, you know, tens of thousands of people interacting on a daily basis and deciding uh, which projects should get a grant and which shouldn't get a grant. Um, so that's that's already there. But uh, but our role is 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 really different because we don't control the monetary policy. We don't direct the building company uh, or the building companies behind Cardano either. So we have a, a very, very different role than many other foundations, which allows us also to take more liability and it allows us to take more risk in other areas such as, uh, you know, a regulatory clarity, policy making, um, you know, and those kind of things where, honestly speaking, it's very hard to do a business model on it. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. Perfect. And uh, you, you touched on education. How important do you think education is in the adoption of blockchain technology? And, and what is it that yourself and the Cardano Foundation are doing to support with this? So I think education has been misplaced and misunderstood many times because I think, you know, there are so many great courses on YouTube and influencers who's talking about, you know, blockchain and you can go on Udemy and you can sign up to, to different things. 
But the truth of the matter is when you go there, what you often find is um, education, which is based on first generation and second generation blockchains. And that's awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is amazing. This is what got blockchain uh, rocking in the first place. But with many of those things, there is one type of identity. There is one type of asset. And there is one type of, of sort of, uh, let's, let's call it metadata and, and transaction types, right? And um, that limits your use cases. It's still very big, but it limits your use cases very often to uh, something who's born digitally and dies digitally. Very often is that capital markets or you know, money or representations of money and you know, those kind of things. And uh, you probably see DeFi is booming and so on. The third generation blockchains, and there's quite a few out there with different sort of you know, uh, take on, on technology and incentives. Uh, they span much wider. We really go into this sort of, you know, this institutional trust gap, which has been emerging. We really look at, you know, there is multiple types of governance. There's multiple types of identity. There is multiple types of asset representation. And every time I say asset representation, people are like, oh, Fred, you're a banker. What you mean is must be something who's measured in money. Well, you know what? Everything can be measured in money, but some things is not directly measured in money, such as intellectual property right or such as, you know, private information or such as, you know, um, your private collection or provenance of silk and other things, right? It has an indirect measurement and it maybe has a value add to it. But when we say sort of asset representation, what we really mean is when you think about a database, you know, and, and a database can be filled with content. Um, that's what we really are talking about here. So anything who you would normally put into some kind of a spreadsheet of a database who has some kind of either personal value or fiscal or monetary value um, can be, you know, managed, stored, transacted uh, in a blockchain. And that opens up a lot of use cases which the first and second generation blockchains didn't offer. So we, we saw that and we said, you know what, um, how do we get universities and ambassadors and all kind of sort of people to start thinking about all these great use cases and not just the finance ones, even though the finance ones are awesome. So we, we set forward and said, you know, we need to build, um, we need to build an, an educational course, which is free for everybody. Uh, it's in English because English is the largest language, but what's more importantly is that this, it's written down in words. So, uh, uh, and why is that? Well, because then you can put it into a large language model and you can translate it into German or Nigerian or do whatever you want. The second part we said is it has to be under an open source or open source like license, because what we want to do is we actually want to provide the slides for the professors. So they don't have to do the slides all the time. They can take these slides, put their own university logo on it. But we also wanted to give it to other blockchains. You know, how, how great would it be that a, like a smaller layer one can just take our slides and what is the definitions of, of, of blockchain use cases and blockchain in general? And they don't have to invest in that. And they can actually push that out to, to whoever is their, uh, you know, listeners and their community and teach them about what's possible. Because the more people who comes on a blockchain, the better the world will get in general because it has these beautiful things about transparency and accountability and all those things. So this is sort of a contribution for us to changing social systems. And hopefully through this, you know, being high quality and for free, um, we will reach, you know, a, a very large set of individuals. And it's not made specifically for software engineers, it's actually made more for what's called solution architects. So people who's, you know, who's, who has a, you know, who's like the Swiss army knives of, of businesses who's going around trying to solve 
problems in a business in general. The other thing we saw was that many regulators are really, you know, they're very engaged with blockchain. They're very engaged with exponential technologies because it changes the world as we know it. And it touches very wide. So they are upgrading their knowledge today. And they're normally doing that by, you know, going on a bespoke uh, course at a, at a, at a university and, and, and so forth. And, you know, it was important for us to, to show the fat tail of innovation. You know, I mean, if, if you build a, a gaming platform or, or you build a super cool game on, on, on a blockchain, should you be forced to go through a bank to interact with that? But probably not, right? I mean, you're not doing that today when you, when you play civilizations, right? So why would we do that today? even though there might be some in-game economics and stuff like that, which we also, by the way, see in many of these games. So what was important for us was not just to show that, the, you know, born digital dies digital, but also when we start thinking about, you know, provenance or supply chain and, you know, how do you optimize the import of goods or how do you do, um, you know, um, diabetes medicine in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of, you know, is it really what the content was in there? Why would you need to go through a regulated sort of bank or, or, or something like that to interact with that? You know, you should most likely go through a different kind of regulated entity like a pharmacy, right? Or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so, so showcasing that in the right aspects was, was very important for us. Um, so that's actually sort of why we entered that, that journey of education because we think that blockchain is very often misunderstood, um, not in a bad way as such, even though some parts of the world don't really like blockchain and, and, and crypto, right? But more like it, the, the definitions need to be widened, but also people need to understand the attack vectors better because, you know, there is different incentives and different technology stacks and based on what that is, it puts it in a different light uh, compared to the whole regulatory discussion, but also compared to a sort of a procurement discussion or, uh, you know, um, counterpart discussion, right? And I think that's that's like incredibly important. Uh, the devil is really in the detail. And I think what we're seeing today in society is that we need to go away from being so technology agnostic. And unfortunately, we need to be technology specific, um, which is also one of those things we can talk about with large language models and computational data, which is a super interesting model, uh, you know, uh, discussion at the moment. So whilst we are talking about education, can we maybe talk about some of the, the challenges we have with educating people um, about blockchain technology? You know, maybe some of the challenges that you face personally or as Cardano yeah. Foundation has faced itself as well. Yeah, so the first challenge is that um, Cardano is an academically uh, very sound blockchain. What I mean about that is that we go back to first principles and everything we do, which is expressed in code, is coming from research. So we start actually by researching, and then we go to a peer-reviewed process. So uh, the Cardano community at large has launched more than, you know, close to, I think, 200 papers at this time, which is all peer-reviewed. And not all of those papers are expressed in code, right? But, but uh, quite a few of them. But when the engineers then actually starts looking at it and starting to express the solution to the problem, which has been described from an academic perspective, they start writing code. And, you know, that's, I think a lot of people like that, right? Code is beautiful. But uh, you, you very often lack a description of the code. So the final product doesn't necessarily has a very good um, documentation or description. And that's actually another part which we wanted to solve or a big problem with the education. 
So if you read the peer reviewed papers and you read sort of the suggestions from the academic, that's not exactly how that was expressed in code, which means that you actually have a gap between what you think the code is doing and what the code actually is doing. So uh, starting the journey of documentation uh, has definitely been a challenge, but it's also a very positive challenge because as we sort of dug into those rabbit holes, what we actually saw is, is extremely encouraging, but it also is very hard to explain to people. And specifically blockchain is, um, let's be very honest about it, is extremely boring. It's a back-end product, right? So if you look 20 years from now, you'll probably have a very little percentage of the population who actually know what a blockchain is and how you know cryptographic primitives work and all those things. But you will have a very large adoption. You know, you probably have 90% of all individuals around the world interacting with something who lives on a blockchain. Um, but they don't necessarily understand how the blockchain is protected or how the incentives are working and so on. Compared to uh, you know, what the development in AI today, right? Where suddenly you can chat with an AI and have a conversation or create a girlfriend or whatever that might be. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much easier value proposition for the average person to interact with a large language model than to start thinking about cryptographic primitives and a blockchain. So I think that's the other part of the challenge is to sort of, um, on one hand, educate people on what's possible, but keep enough room for them to innovate because we shouldn't solve all the problems. I mean, we are just a set of, of individuals working around seven, eight billion people, which we would like to improve their lives of. And they know the problems much better than we do. So how do we spread the knowledge, still make it engaging without directing the solutions, which is, is, is a very interesting problem. Yeah, and you, you mentioned about... Um obviously it being free. Um, my next question is, uh, I guess also uh, you, you touched on making sure it's engaging, but how do we make blockchain education more accessible and engaging outside of, um, you know, making it free? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's a good question. So the road we went down was, uh, as I said, is, is quite complicated and it's actually taken us one and a half years to, to launch what we call the alpha program. And now we have several hundred people who's gone through the alpha program and they've given us a lot of valuable feedback. And we're looking at sort of in the end of the year to, to launch module one and module two. And we have some very specific personas which we are trying to, to make it interesting for. Um, and that being said, you know, we are leaving a lot on the table so people can build a business model or you can take it into a university and make a pay for model or certification model. There's a lot of room for, for people to build a business around that. But what we actually had to do is we actually have to start using AI. Um, so basically, because we saw that it's just too expensive to put me into a room in front of a mic, and then I do the, the lectures. And then two months later, we had a hard fork, uh, so a code upgrade, right? And then suddenly some of those things are wrong and I have to go into the room again. So what we actually saw is that we're really diligently working on these scripts. Uh, what we can do is we can actually get an AI to, to read them out with actually is not as engaging but close to as engaging as it was if i were doing it right but it also uh, you know it, it 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 you know it allows you to sort of to scale better and and then the other part is then you know what is the script right so um, if you go to let's say too high level it doesn't move the needle at all right if you go too low and too much in the detail you lose a lot of people so finding that balance is something we're you know we constantly are going to work on with um 
you know, with 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 the, our community, but also with the uh, the future consumers of this. But uh, hopefully, it's going to be more in a B two B content going forward, meaning that university professors and you know other people who's using that in their daily life will come back and they will start contributing to it. So the idea is really to to make these scripts publicly available for everyone. And if they see a mistake or they see a better way to do it, or they would like to change the the picture to to be more you know, to, to be better, they can actually do that a little bit like we see on GitHub um, with code. But uh, yeah, it's it's not easy, right? Uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it certainly isn't. Yep, so so we can move us on a little bit here from, you know, the educational side of it, everything there. I think we've covered off, you know, most educational topics we could here. Um, if we talk about a little bit about the operational resilience, how can we look to make um, you know Cardano more resilient to some of the operational disruptions that it may face? Mm, yeah. So um, one thing people don't really want to talk about, or at least don't want to talk too much about, is disaster recovery of a fully decentralized distributed network, uh, because um, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, if you allow your node operators to be anonymous, right? And uh, you don't sort of keep a, a track on them and you don't have sort of a large sort of lever you can just put to restart them. Uh, what, what do you do, right? Um, so I think the first thing you need to do is you need to have multiple entities start thinking about network monitoring and network health. Because below any kind of blockchain, you actually have a networking stack, right? And the networking stack allows the nodes to discover each other. It allows the nodes to, to operate. And, and you have seen sort of, Without mentioning any names, you, you you there's a lot of there's a lot of shortcuts which leads you to a very bad place. So there's a, often been some people who's asked me, Fred, why don't you do a, like a, an amazing partnership with a large cloud provider, and then the node operators can get free cloud for you know one year or two years? And I'm like, yeah, what a horrible idea. And they're like, no, because you would get all these media and newspaper articles. And I'm like, yeah, but then you get like maybe eighty or ninety percent of the network with one cloud provider. And if that cloud provider goes down, you know, it doesn't matter that you have different accounts in there, you know, you're down, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at Cardano today, right, we've been up for more than 2000 days straight. If you look into Google, if you look into Microsoft, you look into any of these last things you use, they have not been up for 2000 days straight, right? Uh, if you look at many blockchains, they have not been up for that amount. And you even see situations that a blockchain says, oh, I'm decentralized and distributed and, you know, it's all really great. But then the, the blockchain goes down and then they, they have the ability to rewrite the Genesis block and get the blockchain running again in five minutes. And you'd be like, well, how did that work? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a telltale sign there. So what we've done is we basically built up a, a team of site reliability engineers who basically built up a network monitoring uh, tool. And here again, there is some, some problems and you have to tell me how deep I go. I don't know your listeners that well, right? But imagine that you are an anonymous node operator and I come to you and knock on your door and say, why don't you run this little uh, program for me so I can see how healthy your node is? And you'll be like, oh, hold on a second. That's actually an attack vector. How do I know that that code is, uh, is, is, is verified and valid and all those things? So there is, there's some trade-offs here, right? Um, secondly, uh, we, it was important for us not just to have multiple ways, so multiple different entities who monitor the network, but we also wanted to ensure that multiple uh, entities were looking at not just the monitoring, but also how the, the code base actually was working. And that allowed us also to do some, uh, some uh, to, to explore some, some possibilities some bugs and also to send some new source code there and, and so on. 
And Cardano is one of the most decentralized in terms of operations you will find out there. We have more than 3,000 amazing stake pool operators who every you know day they, they sign blocks and they get up in the middle of the night if they see a little bump on the road and they start you know error searching and so on. But over time, as Cardano gets bigger, the, the responsibilities of these operators gets also more complicated, right? Uh, and therefore, what we do is we, we operate um, a node operators call, uh, which basically means that we are encouraging people to jump on the phone with us every quarter. And we speak about the, you know, the future of Cardano, the, the technical roadmap, uh, network monitoring, and those kind of things to try and encourage them to go deeper into the rabbit hole of, of, of distributed computing, which is, you know, granted, not the largest field in the world, but a very interesting field. Um, so, so we work uh, around that. We also operate a bug bounty program because I mean, the more eyes on the on the price, the better. Uh, specifically, white hacks, right? Uh, but also, what it does do is also do something for our adoption, right? Because then you also encourage people who don't normally look at distributed systems to start looking at it, because you know there might be a bounty there, right? A very big one, um, and uh, you know they they might get very engaged and and like what they see. So, so that's the start of it. And then, you know, what we're going really is that we want to get to a situation that uh, that the operators has as many tools as possible, not just dictated by standards or software from our end, but as many tools as possible and as many incentives as possible to keep operating Cardano and ensuring that as Cardano grows, both in complexity and in usage, um, that 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 they have the you know the tools available, the skills available and the resources available to, to operate Cardano for, for centuries to come. Yeah, and um, I guess some of the, the stuff that our community asks uh, an awful mm -hmm. lot is around, so what are the, the, the key risks to, to Cardano's operational resilience and, and how do you, you mitigate those uh, risks? Yeah, so I think one thing people misunderstand a lot is the difference between open source software and um, and distributed decentralized systems? So many blockchains has been you know running around saying, "Oh, we are open source; is all great." You know, you can see the code, and you know by seeing the code, you can see if there's any bugs, and by seeing if there's any bugs, you know what, uh, we get a much better code base. Well, that's not exactly why open source is amazing, and it doesn't necessarily actually bring you along that journey. What you have to understand is that if the code base doesn't change, so it's very static, think Bitcoin, it works. And for every block which is minted, it verifies the stability of that particular code base in an incredible way, right? Because the market cap of Bitcoin is extremely huge, right? And, and that, that is basically the bounty you, you have on the table. Third generation blockchains are built to ensure as society changes and businesses changes, it has the ability to adopt to that as we learn and, and, and play along with other exponential technologies and other technologies um, as we go along. That means that you have the need to introduce new code or upgrade the code continuously as you work with the users of the code. So the business people who build on top of Cardano, for instance. That is a huge attack vector on Cardano because compared to open source where you will download your own instance of the application and you will run that in a bespoke environment which you control, if that goes down, well, sorry, it's just you who was hit. You know, it's not the rest of the Linux community who was hit. 
But if Cardano goes down, we're talking about thousands of businesses who goes down. So there is a balancing act here, which is incredible hard to, to strike, right? Between the ability to introduce new features, upgrade the code, uh, all those kind of things around what we would say software governance and Q&A and all of those things, um, compared to every time you touch the code, you make the code more complicated. And what, if you're fixing it, something in one end of the shop, you might destroy something in the other end, which you might not be able to sort of fully you know, see as we go along. Or some of those things might actually only play out maybe a year later or two years later. So we actually did a we did a we did an upgrade so so let's call a so-called hard fork which allowed you to do a, a new type of smart contracts on Cardano. Well, this is amazing. I don't know if you've been on Masari today, but you will see that uh, there's a lot of transactions, smart mm -hmm. contracts going on on Cardano. We're I think we're number two at the moment in terms of of, of usage, right? But um, but what it what it did really was it it opened up for the possibility of actually slowing down Cardano in a complete different place. So this new type of contracts has an influence on some old code, which was working fully fine. But those two things in combination actually um, opened up uh, a, a potential bug for us, right? And I think what was so amazing was you saw, you know, uncoordinated, you saw stake pool operators coming together in, in Discord channels in the middle of the night, working together with the pioneering entities towards figuring out what is this, you know, and, and, and to basically post a solution. And I think that's when you have a, a really healthy um, community and that's when you have a really healthy blockchain going on. But that is, I think, from my point of view, the biggest trade-off. Bitcoin is so valuable because it doesn't change, you know, in the code base, right? Cardano is so valuable because it does change. Um, and that is two very different value propositions and there's plenty of room for many more in between as well. But that trade-off you have to be extremely aware of. And as we design, design towards, uh, you know, what we call the age of Voltaire, um, which is really this, you know, increased governance and increased opportunity for the community to, you know, take uh, a wider set of decisions and really unleash some of these incentives and so on. Uh, this is one of the things you have to be, you have to be really aware of what you're doing. Uh, it's a multifaceted problem, which plays out over time with an exponential impact if you get it wrong. <laughs> It's very exciting, uh, actually, right? It, it, it <laughs> but it is a bit technical. It definitely is. So let's move this on a little bit here. We'll talk about the adoption. You know, we can see mass adoption coming to the space. It's fantastic to see. Would you mind talking through, you know, some of the, the adoption we've seen for Cardano, for the foundation, some of the latest partnerships and the benefits they bring, um, you know, to the Cardano Foundation? Sure. Um, yeah, I... I think there's many ways of looking at this, right? So if you look at Cardano in the last nine months, what you will see is that TVL is up more than 200%. You will see that even in a bear market, you see a, you know, a huge amount of transactions. Uh, but more importantly, you see the diversity of transactions are still very healthy. When I speak about the diversity of transactions, I, I, I kind of look between uh, a couple of different metrics. Uh, and I actually do that across multiple chains, uh, even though it's not always apples and pears, right? Uh, and apples and apples. But what's important for me is that that you use the blockchain for different things. So if you would be sending ADA from one person to another or from one to many or many to one, that's what we call a value transaction. If you would assign an identity to that transaction, so you will assign uh, maybe a digital identifier or some metadata talking about what it is or 
you know those kind of things we 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 track that differently right and we can see that the people are using the blockchain for something who has a higher purpose uh, and many sort of banks and brokers don't allow you to do that which is a little bit silly because you could actually you know prove to also aml and other things that you know there's a fantastic use case here right i think the swift system much better right and the next thing is you can do is you can do an nft or you can do a you can do a, what you call a policy or a native asset. So with Cardano, you actually don't need to have a smart contract to issue an asset, right? You can do that as a native asset, which is a fantastic thing. So, and here we actually see that more than 50% of the activity which goes on on Cardano has nothing to do with what we call a value transaction, but it's actually people using Cardano for something relevant. And this is what we are very excited about. So a couple of those partnerships, which uh, we can you can measure on chain, <laughs> Uh, which I think is important that you can go in on a blockchain explorer and find this business um, representation, not just see you moved money from A to B, right? Uh, one of them is uh, merchandise. So merchandise is a company who do uh, merchandise, as you can probably see, right? And what they basically did is, or what we did together with them using a, a set of Python libraries was to give reassurance and confidence to customers that they're buying a genuine product. And we did that by basically a radio beacon so imagine that you buy a baseball cap and you have one of these holographic stickers on it to, to show that this is good, right? Mm. Well, if you put a radio beacon into the hat or into the jacket or whatever that might be, what you're getting is and the opportunity now for, for putting that jacket on the blockchain. So you're proving provenance and, and a verified credential. But you're now also opening up the opportunity for a much better physical experience. Imagine you're walking into a stadium and because you're wearing the bumper jacket, you have access directly to the lounge because you're VIP. You don't need an extra ticket, which can be falsified and all of that, right? You can just walk straight in there and, and get your VIP experience or the drone picks you up as it flies in there and takes that specific picture of you while you're kissing your wife, right? Because you paid an extra five bucks and so on. So it opens up for a complete new experience that that you can not only do sort of the, the reassurance and the confidence that is buying a genuine product, but you can now also play with it uh, because of the of this uh, you know the other technology which in this case is uh, NFC chips. Now you you can also take that into Web three right because if you then have a you know a really nice outfit which is you know original Marvels or something like that, you can then put that directly into a, a computer game uh, and verify that through the blockchain. So so now you suddenly have a, an ability through this other technology to to spread out to complete different client experiences than what you had before. Then in uh, Georgia. We are continuing our um, collaboration with the country of Georgia, specifically in the agricultural business. And what we are trying to get to there is we want to have about 100,000 wine bottles from different wineries on the blockchain by end of the year. And that's basically is about giving them a scalable platform that is cost effective for winemakers and guarantees the authenticity and the genuine Georgian produced wine. So what's unique about this is that, again, we are working with an adjacent technology because wine is physical, right? And I picked some physical examples on purpose, right? I'm assuming that you will put me back into some NFTs in a minute. But, but what is beautiful about this is that we will then have the agricultural ministry using what's called a digital identifier or so-called verified credential to sign off the not just the batch of wine, but that particular bottle has been through the export quality controls which is over 30 different controls they do to ensure the the quality of georgian export wine they're very proud of their wine plus it also gives the 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 the, the, the people who produce the wine 
an ERP platform where they can track where does the wine end and you know where does it sell well and they give them a new way to interact with some of those uh, people who's buying the wine and we see that uh, let's say uh, people get very interested in understanding the footprint in a world where it's very hard to verify the goods you buy online and as you can imagine georgian don't have the same footprint in the supply uh, in the distribution chain as uh, for instance an italian winery so it also for the country of georgia allows them to export the brand of Georgia to places where they normally can't go without, you know, million dollar investments in branding and marketing. And then last but not least, uh, we've done a partnership with the United Nations Humanitarian Crisis Organization for Switzerland, which is about taking an innovative approach to the use of blockchain for philanthropy, allowing donors to pledge continuous support rather to make one of the nations. So many sort of companies that would be doing a one-off donation to uh, to their you know uh, preferred um, partner right and then they will do something with the money what we wanted to do is we wanted to bring blockchain into the heart of united nations we wanted to create a an opportunity for united nations really to touch this beautiful technology and start playing around with that so what they actually done is that they actually operated a stake pool through that stake pool they have a new way to actually interact with the donors. Uh, so that basically changes sort of the treasury strategy. It changes their ability to understand blockchain, but also how to protect a blockchain, which is what a stake pool really is about. But they also start looking at, you know, different NFT drops associated to that. Uh, what does it mean to work with artists, which they've done before, but now over a blockchain ecosystem, you know, um, to work with some of our, um, you know, community members around these art projects. So, uh, but it also allows them to promote blockchain education across United Nations in a, in a new way and encourage them to, to start thinking about, you know, different ways of applying it in their operating model also internally. And I think that's really the future for sort of very large organizations, which is very dependent on the brand, is to continuously evolve about how you verify that you do what you say you do, how you keep building on your brand, but also giving more choice to the donors about direction of the uh, of the donations and what they care about and so forth. So I think that's another an amazing thing. And I really, you know, um, I would highly encourage you to go on a blockchain explorer and find one, if not all three of those projects and start looking at the code and start looking about those things. Because for me, it's uh, verifiable is, is much better than private in many of these cases. And it might inspire you to, to build something even greater. Yeah, I mean, um, the the alcohol uh, you mentioned, obviously wine, but there's there's spirits, and you know, you you do get um, fake spirits uh, being sold around the world that has devastating effects on on people's uh, you know lives. I guess you know, people. Um, I've been on holiday uh, in uh, Greece and had somebody uh, at the hotel pass away uh, from drinking. Um, oh, wow. A, a fake vodka that they purchased from one of the the local shops and uh you know being able to tap your phone on on some of these items uh is, is life-changing so that one really does resonate with me it's a, a very exciting sort of initiative uh, i feel for sure um you, you touched on on metrics i mean we've got our own uh on-chain data and we can see that there's also been a, a substantial increase in you know wallets um, particularly people holding over 10,000 ADA 100,000 ADA uh, I think uh, 10,000 ADA is up like 
20% in the last year. And uh, we've got over 100,000 uh, ADA wallets, um, you know, up 6%. So I think there's there's many different metrics that, that are all showing really good uh, adoption for, for Cardano. But what are the key drivers for adoption for, for Cardano, do you feel? I think the foundation is creating the right conditions for increased blockchain utility in order to support the development of further innovation. So this is a little bit maybe cryptic statement, right? But what I do feel very often is that the total cost of operating on a blockchain is still too high. And here I don't speak about, you know, uh, transaction fees and so forth, even though I do know some blockchains are very, uh, you know, it's very hard uh, because they don't have deterministic fees like Cardano has, and it's very hard to sort of budget that. Now, what I'm really speaking about is, that the blockchain is so different than other databases that you actually need a set of developer tools, containers, uh, chain indexers, and other things um, to ensure and maintain whatever product or whatever use case you're doing. So I think this is the sort of the first thing I wanna I, I wanna mention, right? So making blockchain more accessible to all is vital for realizing blockchain's potential in solving diverse problems. So this is not just as we spoke about education, it's also about tooling and it's about this connective tissue which you really need. And, and here, you know, we have to be very humble and honest and say, you know, uh, Ethereum R3 quarter and some of the other sort of, you know, more private permission blockchains that they, they, they may be a couple of years ahead than many other um, projects, right? But as the private permission blockchain sort of crumbles, uh, we get a lot of inspiration for some of this um, let's call it infrastructure, which is built to connect to the to the blockchain, right? So we can sort of take over some of those standards and other things where, you know, you know, large associations of companies have been working on this for the last five, six years. So this, this gives us a boost in that. The other part is uh, demonstrating blockchain's utility and adaptability, right? So that's what I spoke a little bit about these projects, exploring the art of the possible. So not necessarily do more of what is, but do something which isn't there yet uh, and our ability to prove how you can merge blockchain with other technologies to create a unique value proposition and then bring that out in a sort of an open source inspirational way through our developer portal so i highly encourage you to go to our developer portal and, and track some of those uh, or look get inspiration of some of those projects there um, i think this is this is really key um, Last but not least, um, you know, we, we, you know, we have something called the Kidano Summit. Many other projects have other similar things, right? But I think if, you know, coming together physically, <laughs> uh, meeting engineers and meeting business people, meeting people from the infrastructure and so on, you know, going in and whiteboarding this out, um, it's amazing what the human brain can do when we come physically together. Very often we hide like we do today behind these screens. And it's great, you know, it, it sort of gets us half the way, but it does not get us as close to us, you know, uh, actually meeting in a room. So enjoying sort of these uh, these community events physically and also the summits. We have one in Dubai coming up in November where, you know, between, you know, 1,500 and 2,000 innovators, uh, business people, engineers, backend people, front end and so on as meeting uh, to do deal making, to, to raise capital, to you know, try and, you know, promote their projects, do solutions. Uh, we have people who, who's not on a blockchain coming because they want to explore blockchain. We have blockchain avocados who is basically just, you know, everything they do is blockchain. Out of those kind of epicenters, 
uh, comes innovation. And I think uh, that's definitely something we need to be very much aware of here in a, in a digital age coming into winter season and potentially, I don't know, another lockdown or something like that. So you've, you've led me on for a fantastic segue here. We're talking about obviously making Cardano more appealing. The Cardano Summit is really good for peer-to-peer engagement, you know, talking about blockchain, everything that's going on with Cardano. Is there anything else you guys are working on to obviously make Cardano more appealing to businesses, to governments and so forth? There is actually. Uh, we just launched out of the Cardano Foundation uh, an explorer. And now you say, oh, there's a lot of explorers out there. Why would you even bother to launch an explorer? Now, one of the things we do in the Cardano Foundation is we interact a lot with policymakers, regulators, auditors, and other, um, let's say, uh, you know, maybe not that interesting sets uh, of people. But this is the people who basically tick the boxes. And one thing we've seen is that um, it's very hard to prove that you are who you say you are. In blockchain, we always say trust, but verify. But how do you verify that, uh, you know, for instance, with Cardano, we have um, liquid non-custodial staking. How do you as a regulator verify that Cardano has liquid non-custodial staking when the largest proof of stake blockchain in the world doesn't have that, right? So they have slashing, they have login periods and other things. So is that, you know, you create some slides. Do you force them to hire a computer engineer who basically sits and explains the code and they have to maybe spend a year or two years to go through, in our case, the Haskell? Now, what you do is you build an explorer with a persona user group being the aforementioned people, and you give them a, a visual experience of the staking lifecycle, exactly how that works, which is clickable and verifiable down to code. Another thing which many is very interested in is who actually decides on a blockchain? Who controls the blockchain? And here, you know, there's different layers of obfuscation and, you know, uh, of, of goodwill and badwill, you know, sometimes. Um, so what we've, we've done in the Explorer is we really paid a lot of attention to uh, what we call governance events. So we're basically showcasing all the governance, uh, governance events and who actually signed off on those since the inception of the Cardano uh, blockchain. So by working on showing some of this, let's call it business logic for Cardano, which obviously also has some extended um, usage to it, right? And, and, and it's very important to understand. What it will allow us to do is also to then move to the next level, which is, of course, projects. So if you are a stablecoin project based in the UK, right, and you need an FCA approval, we, by the way, introduced this to the FCA, and the FCA was amazingly happy about this Explorer. And they gave us some feedback around what they would like to see in, in the first edition and also the second edition, right? But if you are, let's say, you are, you are, you are a stablecoin project based in, um, in, the, in the UK, right, you would actually need to, to get the attention of the FCA, right? Because what you normally would do is you fill in a lot of papers and then you will sit back and you will hope that the you know, positive response come back, right? But how does the FCA actually verify that you do what you say you do on the blockchain? And here is what we are going to use the Cardano Foundation's Explorer for, right? So by us getting that understanding and being able to you know, do some flow charts and some other things, the hope is that we will get a larger or quicker turnaround and remove some of this um, insecurity for for the people who you know sometimes need to supervise because that's their role, and sometimes need to protect consumers because that's their role, or or needs to understand incentive mechanisms on on these very difficult systems, right? 
So, uh, so we launched this in the beta version and, you know, uh, feel free to share the link in, in your show, but uh, we're super interested in specifically you paying attention to, to some of these uh, newer features, which we haven't seen in other explorers around the world. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's at least uh, one thing. I think that also, you know, talks a lot into operational resilience and talks into the fat tail of innovation, which we not only are seeing in Cardano, but hopefully we'll see across multiple public permission blockchains going forward. Yeah, it sounds sounds amazing, and uh, I'm sure the FCA and other regulators will be uh, stoked to 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 be able to see that and have that level of of detail at their fingertips for for sure. Um, obviously, that's that's I guess one challenge with with regulators that you you've kind of touched on a, a little bit there with that solution. But what other challenges are there for for Cardano adoption? I think another challenge is size. So even though Cardano is very big uh, in terms of nearly all metrics, right? Um, you you cannot underestimate the economics of scale, right? And there is uh, you know one or potentially two uh, blockchains which is uh, significantly larger than Cardano, and uh, for many distribution is very important. And obviously you know the entry barrier to many blockchains are still relatively high, even though they might not be monetary. They can be from an educational perspective and so on. So. Um, so I think, you know, what's important here also is that we are launching a set of Java libraries. Well, I spoke about Python earlier, now some Java and other things, which makes it the, the adoption easier for, for multiple types of developers. But I, I think economics of scale is still a thing, right? So, um, you know, you, you need to get to sort of over a, a certain tipping point. And I think Cardano is over that tipping point. But of course, uh, you would probably see that the more adoption we get, the more adoption we get just because we have a lot of adoption. <laughs> And what you unfortunately see uh, in a continued bear market is that a lot of, even though really cool technical projects, they're having, you know, a hard time to sort of to pull through. And, um, you know, um, yeah, that's, that I do find that's a bit sad sometimes, right? But, uh, but I do think there is a challenge in terms of proving and verifying the value we bring as a public permission blockchain and as a public infrastructure to the world. Um, but also explaining, you know, the differences because there is other exponential technologies who use a lot more time on on on, on marketing and a lot more money in marketing, or is easier to understand from the gecko. Um, so I mean, yeah, there's definitely an, a fight for attention out there uh, going on. That's that's for sure. So obviously, we did touch on previously everything about the Cardano the Cardano summit out in Dubai. Is there any you know any leaks or any information you can give to us in regards to the Cardano summit? I'm excited about many things, right? Uh, there's of course some really cool keynote speeches, some panel discussions, some interactive workshops, and uh, it will be sad not to mention that uh, if you cannot come to Dubai, there is actually 20 plus other workshops around the world happening in the week before or a week after, which is sort of copies of the summit led by. Uh, community members so there will be a lot of information going on um, we will be uh, not only making a, a large hackathon or it will be sort of the conclusion of a larger hackathon uh, but I think uh, what's sort of really exciting is that uh, I don't know if you've been sort of how much you've been following Cardano but Mithril uh, is now live which basically makes it much easier with light clients uh, on top of that there is a, another set which is called Hydra which allows you to do a, a type of uh, our side chains, which is also live on Cardano and allows you sort of to have the best of two worlds, sort of a permissioned side chain environment with an unlimited amount of transactions to nearly zero cost and, you know, an amazing speed, right? And when you start pairing that together with certain use cases, and then you have, you know, uh, blockchain leaders as 
Dr. Marvin Al Saruni, the CEO of the Dubai Blockchain Center, who is so anchored into the UAE and has so much access to so many, you know, uh, companies who's building. You can really get a good mix of sort of local involvement of new technology and of people who is very engaged and very skilled in building on that. So I think this is a good combination. We would also have a, a set of uh, sort of liquidity providers, uh, not in sort of a blockchain sense, but more sort of in an investment sense, which uh, has announced that they're so interested in, in the project that they will be gracing us and being, uh, being there. And then uh, last but not least, right, I think um, a big shout out. We will have a stake pool operators track, which I think is, and uh, I, I know I spoke about that earlier, but it is really a passion of mine because, you know, one of the worst things you can sort of happen is that you can get the, the future operations of the blockchain wrong. And we actually saw that with a, a tier, tier two blockchain here currently, right? Where they're really struggling in terms of the, everything mathematically works really great, but they don't have sufficient people who, uh, who, uh, who actually are securing the blockchain and the consensus on a, on a basis, right? And, and we luckily, we are not in that situation. We are in a very good situation. But I think uh, the role of stake pool operators are changing over time. So we will we'll cast a special attention to stake pool operators and their contribution and, and also how they will participate in governance processes going forward. Um, so I think this is, there's a lot of really innovative things going on, but, um, but the, this, this mix of local presence, businesses and blockchain is, uh, is very powerful. Awesome. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. And uh, hopefully we'll get to, to see you when we're there. Um... Do you have anything else that you'd like to to share with with the audience? Uh, anything that perhaps we haven't touched on that you're you're really excited about and uh, would like to share? Well, I am very excited about what we call the age of Voltaire and SIP sixteen ninety four, right? Which is a huge governance transformation on Cardano, most likely the largest you've ever seen in the world in the last maybe fifty years or something like that. So we're talking about millions of people who live or, or technically they become citizens on Cardano and their ability to have a voice and make their voice heard. Uh, and basically, um, I, I was about to say replicate, but what it really does is it creates a new type of governance where we will get all of the data points. And I know you should normally be speaking about, you know, the governance will lead us to, you know, really great things, right? But what I'm also excited about is you will get all these data points live playing out on the blockchain as this moves on, right? And I think that's going to uh, inspire uh, many types of democracies and governance around the world from nation states to companies to, uh, you know, city states to really reevaluate how their current governance is and how they can be sort of, changed or impacted by a blockchain-based systems because that would probably allow you to get you know more transparent decisions more accountability behind the decisions better incentive models for politicians liquid democracy and you know if you get all of that into the equation you will get different leaders you will get different decisions and most likely hopefully we can come together much better as a as a, as a system of people and take better decisions about how we live, breathe, and interact on this beautiful place we call Earth. That's fantastic, and uh, I'd like to to just say a big thank you for for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to spend it with us and and, and our audience. So I really do appreciate that. Well, likewise, and thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to seeing you again, and hopefully we can have a, a really good chat again soon, either here or live in Dubai. Yeah, sounds sounds fantastic. 